0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, We've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at
2: heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Chef Elena Regan of the restaurant Elizabeth has a new memoir out called Burn the Place. It talks about her unconventional life's journey through struggles with addiction, Anxiety and finding her true self on her path to becoming the world's most recognized chefs. Later on in the show, we have Fletcher C. Johnson who is here for his the third time on the tunes. He's here to talk about his new record, Are You Feeling It? and his new podcast, Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson that talks about the songs on the new record. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes.
3: We talk about food. We talk about music. With music. Finger on the pulse, snacky tune.
4: Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we have Chef Elena Regan, the author of the new book, Burn the Place. Welcome to Snacky Tunes.
5: Thanks for having me.
4: Yes. Uh, Let's go all the way back, back to when you were in diapers, back (laughs) to the farmhouse you grew up in. Uh, Set set the scene of of your childhood, um, where you grew up, and uh, kind of the involvement of food uh, with you and your family from the very, very early age.
5: Yeah, the scene. Um, that is definitely my favorite part. So it was a old farmhouse in uh, kind of the middle of nowhere at the time in Indiana. So lots of cornfields. Um, I say at the time because now it's built up a little bit over there. But um, there was uh, some woods nearby, not far away, called Deep River. And I used to skip rocks there and look for mushrooms with my dad and. Um, we had a couple gardens. One was for berries and herbs, and the other was vegetables. It was everything you could imagine that one could grow. Uh, We had a horse and a pony and a pole barn with all sorts of things in it, a lot of retired restaurant furniture from um, a Polish restaurant that my mom and dad had. And, um, yeah, it, it was just amazing that i think the part that i include with me and diapers in the book is going outside and picking raspberries and my mom was always amazed that i'd pick the ripe ones and i'd just stand there and eat them
4: well i mean that's the that's the point right you just (laughs) off the bush kissed by the sun into your mouth
5: yeah it's amazing uh another thing that i include in the book is um, her fried zucchini so just picking it right from the garden and then my mom would dust it in a little bit of flour salt pepper and then put it right into um, a little like shallow fryer that she had that was just so butter fried and it was just amazing
4: that is that is incredible and you mentioned foraging with your with your father um, what type of mushrooms were on the property in the area and what were some of the tips that he gave you from from early on?
5: Well, we um, would go to my grandfather's farm a lot, which was not that far away. But um, on our own property, we had meadow mushrooms and puffballs. And then um, not too far away at my grandfather's farm or Deep River, um, we would – well, Deep River was good because of the old oak trees for sheep's head mushrooms. That's what a lot of people in Indiana call them because – they look like a fluffy sheep's head. And so that's exactly what he told me to look for. Look look for the sheep's head at the base of a tree. Mm -hmm. Uh, At my grandfather's farm, we did, so that's the fall. In the summer, we look for chanterelles. So the tip for that was looking for, like, a little orange flute. And then um, morels in the spring, which, you know, are those conical-shaped ones with almost like a sponge-like webbing. Um, So yeah so it was just um something I did from a very early age that we always continue to do and and we still go mushroom hunting together to this day
4: incredible now uh now that you're a chef, have you turned around and taught him a number of things
5: yeah 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 I, some well. When we talk about my cookbook, he says, can you leave a section in the back that uh, I can include some recipes? So he, he doesn't really want to listen to me when I give him tips on cooking. I don't think it's quite registered yet that I'm a chef, even though he's had my food. Um, but, yeah, we we definitely still love to cook together, and when we do mushrooms together, it's still that very basic way Um if it's a hen of the woods or the sheep's head, just lightly dusting them in flour and adding them to the pan. Butter, that's it. A little salt and pepper. Um, Morels, just again, in butter. He loves to have them with eggs, as do I, so scrambled eggs and morels. And um, the chanterelles, you know, I I put a a recipe in the book. Well, you know, one that's written out, but we do that with butter, salt and pepper, a little red wine vinegar. Um, so yeah, we still, we still do all those things together.
4: Well, uh, in the book, uh, well, it says that you have an idyllic setting for a childhood. It was, it was pretty rough growing up. Um, was it always like that, uh, running in the background or, or did things as you got older begin to get harder?
5: Um, I I think definitely as I I got older, you know, things began to get harder. As a child, I was a little bit confused about, you know, sexuality and and gender. Uh, And um, as I got older, you know, eventually just figured my own way through the world, but um, it was it's you know, it was rule as as many people probably experience today too. So, um, you don't get to see a lot of what the world is like and my family was by no means sheltered, but it was also just a different time, you know, growing up in the early eighties was just so much different than it is now.
4: Yes, of course. And and considering that you grew up in a bit of a an isolated area there weren't as many reference points as you would say maybe in like a larger city.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was uh, just so different, but also I, I felt, I felt safe. I think the farmhouse made me feel safe. That comfort of the, the time and the place was actually just, it w- I, I talk about that in the book. It was felt like that was a part of me. And I I actually describe it as being my identity when I didn't know what my identity was. Um, And uh, now I have a a homestead in the upper peninsula of uh, Michigan called Milkweed Inn. And um, it feels a lot like the same. um, Mm. I think just because of all the foraging I'm doing and um, just being connected to the land. So I think that that's the thing that's most important to me When, whenever I don't know what my direction is, just being somewhere that's out in nature and um, having a lot of things to do as far as foraging and cooking is something that really just is so fulfilling to me.
4: Identity is an interesting concept. Obviously, it's family and, and place. Um but you, you also touch on um, the gender identity and the confusion that you faced growing, growing up. In the context of what you have learned now and uh, where you are now, what advice would you have given yourself or what navigating tools would you give to other people who might be in a similar situation uh, that you faced?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what I would say to, to my younger self Um, I, I really don't because I, I think about my life, you know, when I'm reflecting and especially while writing a memoir and I think, you know, what, what I would do different. And I think about different times in my life, like, um, you know, had I made one choice rather than the other, how would that have turned out? And, um, and I'm really I mean, I'm really just happy the way that things have gone. I felt like it evolved for me in the way that it needed to and that I learned the lessons that I did, even sometimes if it was like I was banging my head against the wall, um, even Mm -hmm. as I got older, you know, and dealing with the alcoholism. But I think everything sort of just happened at the right time. Um, So... I think I would just maybe say hang tight, (laughs) you know. It's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. Um, But for other people, you know, advice, and maybe if they're dealing with um, confusion, and if it's particularly about gender identity, that's really hard to say because I, I was growing up now, I think I would be able to see so many different forms of life probably still in my world community from television and other, other things, just media. And I think that I, I, I think about that a lot, like, you know, children are able to change their gender at such a young age. And I think that that's probably something that I would have wanted, uh, when I was very young, but my, um, I think that that's something my mom would have said, like, okay, well, you're going to have to pay for it. So <laughs> so yeah, that's not happening. But um, that's really hard because for me, things changed um, as I talk about in the book, you know, and I'm sometimes don't feel like uh, I'm female. And I don't definitely don't feel like I'm male. Um, you know, And probably if I was in my 20s, I would ask, change my pronouns to they or them or theirs. But, you know, I I feel very comfortable just kind of being in that androgynous place and um you know, happy with my sexuality and, and um my gender identity. So but it's interesting I think a lot about um this I think when I was a youth, it was before that I knew that there were things such as gay or straight or lesbian or bi or trans or any of those things. And just having a, knowing that there was uh, something in me, and I can't say necessarily attracted to women when I was a tiny child, but uh, seeing the heteronormative relationships of male and female, it just made me assume, okay, I'm, I must be male so mm. so I, but yeah, i it's so crazy because it's hard to think about that now with you know children, and i I don't know because we all change and grow, and I feel like at forty years old, I'm still changing and growing, so you know to be able to have a choice like that is a little bit almost incomprehensible, but I mean, I'm glad it's it's out there, and people are open to it, but um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, you know, that's something that I think people have to look really deep within themselves to figure out.
4: Your struggles with alcoholism um, is a strong backbone to the early parts of your story. Um, how, how did that begin or where do you have a sense of that? And, and how did you deal with it uh, at such a young, young age and also becoming sober as well?
5: Right. Um, so, I uh, um, look, there's my Uncle Georgie and my sister, and there's other family members, too, who I didn't necessarily touch on, um, who we, like, I knew young, like, they were an alcoholic, even if I didn't have the term for them, but it was seeing yeah. them in certain situations, and you knew that just something wasn't right, and, that the alcohol did something different to them. And I think that what I've learned in AA as an adult, um, and I think people learn this in all sorts of programs or rehab, but uh, something that we talk about a lot is um, that the drinking is a symptom. And, you know, if you're thinking of it as an illness, it's just one of the symptoms of the disease and I think a part of it for me is not quite ever feeling comfortable and being a, a child with really high anxiety. Um, and again, in the early 80s, I think, you know, we don't really, it wasn't like take your child to a, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, at least at that time, or for for my family, that wasn't an option, but I was abnormally shy for a child um, and I and I talk about that in the book and also with the gender confusion and not feeling quite right in my own skin I think that once I had alcohol it was like whoa you know this this is amazing I can be this completely different person and feel a little bit more normal like I could talk to people and maybe look them in the eye or, or just, it made me feel different. And so I think though, my mind was already set for that stage, you know, for that symptom to like be so relieving. And the first time I drank, I just had no concept whatsoever for stopping. And so one of the things also that I've learned in A is when we think about alcoholism is that it's twofold. It's, you know, a disease of the mind and an allergy of the body. So the, the allergy comes in is when, once you start drinking, it's very hard to stop. And um, so that I think I really relate to that. Like, okay, yeah, once I start drinking, it's, I mean, there's been times where I've tried so many times to, you know, okay, I'm just going to have one, I'm just going to have two, or I'm not going to do drugs, or, you know, all these, I'm just going to drink organic wine, or whatever, you know, or it must have been the shots, or, you know, I kind of went through all of that trying to try different methods of control, and sometimes I could do it, but... Mostly, well, I know that when I take a drink, it's completely. I never know what's going to happen. It could be one of those nights in a jail cell, um, like I've described in the book, or it could, you know, it could be two, and I go home and I and I get up and I'm to work on time. So um, that unpredictability is a really scary thing. And so when I was young, it wasn't the term wasn't like, oh, you're an alcoholic, but I knew like, okay, I'm just like my sister. I'm just like Uncle Georgie. Um, So that for me, um, I didn't really have very much denial in my life. I mostly spent uh, my time trying to control my alcohol consumption more than denying that I had a problem.
4: Which is interesting approach to it. Just like it's uh, almost you're making deals with yourself. Which yeah. is almost in a way, almost in a way, you're like negotiating with yourself. Which is, I'm not saying that it's, it's like you already know the problem as opposed to the people who are like, I don't have a problem, you're the one with the problem. And it's almost mm-hmm. like, no, I can control this. I promised myself only two. And it's like, you know, one, two pints later and a couple bottles of wine and, and off mm-hmm. to it. So, so what, what was it um, that finally got you to stop? What was the um, the journey that you went through to realize that this was not uh, not for you? Uh,
5: yeah, that's. I mean, that was a lo- a long journey, but uh, and many factors. Um, eventually, it became, it wasn't fun anymore. You know, because I had more and more of those acts of unpredictability where um, I ended up with a lot of regret because maybe I missed an appointment, or I slept with somebody I would have never wanted to sleep with, or I woke up in jail, you know, all of these crazy instances. But then um, also taking uh, time out to get sober at different in different parts of my life, because I from the time I, I think when I was 17 or 18, I my mom and my sister took me to an outpatient rehab and, you know, not much happened from that because I was still so young and I think my brain was still forming. Um, but in my, after my sister died, there was some more, uh, instances where, you know, I, I was scared and so I'd scare myself into AA because I knew that that was a place to go to. And, um, there was something that over the years I would see people come in. If say I put three months together, I'd see somebody come in new and they had 30 days. And then maybe a couple months later I would drink and I'd go out drinking for a year or so. And then I'd come back, you know, to get clean again for a little bit. And suddenly that same person had a year. Um, Mm. And so Things like that would happen, and so I knew something was working there. And another thing that uh, people say in AA is, like, you don't ever have to feel this way again. And that really stuck with me because the last time I drank, um, I just to set up the scene, I was in a nice relationship. I had a decent job. I still had a lot of my close friends, Um, but everybody was starting to be on the fringes and it was becoming harder and harder for me to function. And my binges were getting closer and closer together. While I didn't have any big car accidents or times in, you know, uh, a stay in jail or anything at that moment, um, there was just one day where I that thought kept going through my head was, you never have to feel this way again. And it was in a moment of a lot of guilt and regret and beating myself up because I had just started my um, business, you know, working for myself. I was still working at a restaurant at the time, but I had started what I then called One Sister, and I was selling pierogies at farmer's markets and um, at some stores, and I also saw all this potential in me and had finally really figured out a direction that I wanted to go um, in my life. And it was just everything was on a string, all those relationships, friends, family, jobs, uh, future. And um, so then I went back to AA, and since then I've been able to stay clean.
4: We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from the archives, and then we'll be back here on Snacking Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. You got into kitchens at a very early age, about fifteen. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, there was cooking from the family. What refuge did you find there, and why did it? What drew you in at such a, a young age?
5: I like to think it's because when I was in the womb, my my mom was working in the restaurant making pierogi, so it was almost like I I develop that uh, know-how through, like, osmosis or something. But I think, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever worked in a restaurant or, or um, I know you talk talked to a lot of people who have, but it's fun. You know, It's it can be just, like, the camaraderie and um, the way people interact. It was the first time in my life I had seen – worked you know when I was 15 so that my first job and I saw the chefs interact with the waitresses, and you know the the customers and people being happy and and doing a good job and people saying wow you're doing really good so all of that just made me fall in love a little bit and um, and then it was something where I could go and for most places, if I did a pretty good job, I I got hired and and I was rewarded. Um, not necessarily financially, but you know, I think that that's sometimes what we want as young adults is somebody to say, "Hey, you're doing a good job." And um, my family was very good about that, but I wasn't the best student ever, and so I didn't really do that at school. Um, and so that felt really good to me, and I think that that drew me in and but also it was the food. Like I loved to eat. I was very interested in cooking. Um even from an early age I had cooked with my parents and we always had home cooked meals. So seeing people do it in a restaurant setting was just really intriguing to me and I wanted to I wanted to learn more about it. And so I just I just kept with it. And then as I got a little bit older and I was in college and I started working in front of the house, um, it was, it was easy to make good money and work, you know, have the schedule that I needed to go to school. And, um, so it was, and yeah, like I said, that like, it was, it was fun. So, uh, I was beginning to have a secondary education especially as I got to some finer restaurants where we really focused on food and and cooking techniques and wine so I I enjoyed learning about that and the other thing that I loved is you know seeing these things food and ingredients come in that I was familiar with um that I had grown up around and that seeing those processed in different ways and one of my um, first fancy jobs was at a place called um, Trio which was uh, that Grant Atkins was the chef and then he now has Alinea but that I was 22 and that just blew my mind and that's when I really saw people working in restaurants as a career not only the back of the house but the front of the house and um you know it wasn't just kind of like oh this is my next stop type of place it was like so everyone was so passionate and so creative and um so that just i that one i dedicate a whole chapter to trio in my book because that was really what kind of sealed the deal for me even though when I was young I knew that someday I wanted a restaurant but that was the one that you know I think really just had the biggest impression on me in my life
4: and from there you developed this identity um, as a self as a new forager which uh, obviously has clear ties to your upbringing upbringing where did the identity or how did it evolve uh, over time, and where did you, or why a new forger versus just a forger in general?
5: Um, so, when I, so for a while, like I was saying, I was in the front of the house, and then when I went to um, the back of the house, I began to imply a lot of new techniques and things that I was learning because I had developed a lot of really good basic cooking skills throughout my whole life Um, but so I started to learn newer techniques more modern techniques um, and just expand my knowledge in general because in the past 20 years I mean cooking in general has evolved but as I started my own business it began that new forager new gatherer type of idea because when I got back in the kitchen the the things I could do best were working with the things that I knew and continuing those um those searches like all right let's make sure everything's exactly in season and trying to pick the best quality and um also, just being out, that that was my thing, like, okay, well, let's go out into nature because and, and look for these things that I remembered having as a child and preserving and working in the way that was the most exciting to me and that felt probably most connected to my childhood. And so uh, that was a lot of the techniques and ingredients that I used, and, you know, that was Pretty much right at the time where this was in 2010, when I had decided, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to open my own restaurant and I'm going to go about this in, in a way that's a little bit untraditional, not having worked under, you know, tons of high-end chefs, and um, and then you know, in a self-taught method because I finished my degree in writing, not going to culinary school. But I do feel like I had that, you know, lifelong education. But So I just started to um, apply things that felt right to me. And at that time, when, you know, everybody was starting to talk about farm-to-table and preservation and fermentation and, and foraging because I think as in the food culture, people began to be more curious. Uh, I think that with... The advent of social media and the cooking shows and all of those things that people now had access to more than like the Frugal Gourmet or Yen Can Cook, which were great shows to watch. But you know, now there was uh, Bizarre Foods and all these other ones and uh, Anthony Bourdain, and so um, I think with that brought on a lot of curiosity to people and and all of those concepts of farm to table and seasonality just became and foraging became so much more popular because people wanted to try new things a lot of people grew up without you know having sauerkraut in their basement you know which was something that was normal for me but a lot of uh, people hadn't had something that was fermented before and so when they'd hear about these buzzwords they want to go out and find that you know so um, that's I, I think that's a long-winded answer to where like the new gather came
4: from. As you move to the ranks, you, you've been in the industry for almost 25 years. Um, the sexism in the color industry, although exposed and more you know uh, people are more aware now, was rampant during the early days. Uh, how did you navigate it, and uh, how did it play into eventually going off and doing your own thing if it, if it had any impact at all?
5: I'm sorry, what was the beginning of the question?
4: Oh, just how did you navigate um, sexism that you faced that's so endemic of the culinary industry, starting at such a young age through the next two and a half decades of, the, of your career?
5: Right. I'm. Um, I'm sorry again. I just missed that. The sexual what?
4: Oh, the sexism. So oh. Just, okay. Just, <laughs> sorry.
5: <laughs> sorry that kept going out for me. Um. This is a really interesting question because I think that there's so many conversations we can have about it. I think that growing up where I did and having the father that I did, who is a wonderful, sweet man, but um, he's still, like, kind of, you know, he's almost 80, and he has a hard time grasping that uh, women can actually take care of themselves, Um, and so I was, like, already um, exposed to that from such an early age, um, and not necessarily ever put down, but It was almost normal to me to know that if I was in certain areas or certain industries and there were a lot of men, that this was going to be a a thing. But I think what I did, and again, this goes back to my childhood, is wanting to be able to do everything boys did. You know, when I was – I talk about this in the book – when I was maybe like four or five saying to my mom, well, can I play football? Can I play this? Can I do this? Like all these boy things. And, you know, oftentimes the answer was like, no, they, you know, they don't have that for girls. And so maybe it was just my own personal conquest to be like, all right, where wherever there's a lot of male males that are dominating something, I want to I do that too. And I want to be recognized as being just as good. You know, I I want to be just as good as the guys. Um, So, like I said, I think dealing with it was more of something that I I, I might not even have noticed as, as much as I can see some of those things now. But it was almost a norm for me to be a woman and... Know that, like I can't do or I shouldn't do these boy things because um, when I started at trio, there was uh in the kitchen there was one woman, and she was the pastry chef, and we still hear about that a lot now that you know women start at a at a fine dining place or you know any restaurant and they get put in the pastry department and I'm like no, I came here to be a a savory chef. Uh, you know, I, I've had several uh, uh, women employees who have said, okay, I worked here, there, and, uh, yeah, I got grown in the pastry department, and eventually they worked their way out. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely changing a little bit. But, it, you know, it's all those kinds of changes are slow. I just recently saw um, a, a restaurant hiring um and they had put an ad up on instagram and it was a picture of their kitchen and all their employees and it was all men you know all all guys in their 20s majority of them white i was thinking if i was younger and just starting out as a cook and saw that picture i think that that well knowing who i was might might have inspired me, <laughs> you know, like, okay, I'm going to work there. <laughs> but for a lot of women, I think that that could be something that looks a little bit scary. So I don't, unref- I don't know.
4: Or unreflective. You just don't see yourself there.
5: No, I mean, in my in my kitchen, we try to make sure that, we have it diversified as much as possible. And, you know, sometimes people rotate in and out and we might end up with all guys and then there might be another time we end up with all girls. But I try as best as I can when I'm going through my hiring process to be conscious of, you know, who I'm bringing in for interviews and thinking about the diversity with within the workspace.
4: Hmm. So you are, uh, you know, at the end of the writing Process in the beginning of speaking a lot about this, and I, I think probably in one of the more introspective, reflective periods that one might have in their life. Is there a particular through line that you have noticed from writing the book and, and discussing it that you see for your life? Just a, an overarching theme or, or common, common trends that you might not have otherwise noticed had you not done this project?
5: Oh, that's a really good question. I I think it really really um made me realize how I've my whole life has almost been like centrifugally like propelled into where I am now. Uh and I think that goes back to like your earlier question about what you know what advice would I give my younger self, and it's just like every everything, it seems like it's been built up to this moment, and I think that now what I'm struggling with as, I, you know, I'm getting just a little bit older, I still feel like a lot of my friends said the 40s is the new 30s, and they still say that the 50s is the new 40s, but I really feel like I'm at a point where what's becoming the most important to me as um, I got married a couple years ago, and I want to have a family. And as my parents get older, is really trying to find balance because I've worked so hard to get to where I am, and the, the work is nonstop, having a small business. And I talk about that in, in the book, a lot of the frustrations I have. As a small business owner, I don't think it's even necessarily just being a chef, which is you know, an extremely hard business, but being a small business owner, uh, it's 24-7, and so I'm trying to figure out what is going to be me still cooking and just continuing this career but in a capacity that fits. A lifestyle that could have a little bit more balance and so that was a big part of the end of my book where I talk about us getting our cabin in the woods um, and what I actually did this summer and why I'm in the Upper Peninsula now is because we opened that in which we have 10 guests come um, every weekend and I cook four big meals one 15 course meal on Saturday night and The rest of the week, I get to forage, I go to the farmer's market, um, and I get to cook in a capacity that is really just me managing myself, and I'm hoping that I still have Elizabeth. I have a a chef who's in my place there running it for um, July and August, but when I return, we'll finish out the fall and then next winter, but may through october next year um we have reservations at the inn for every weekend so um i don't know what's to come um you know as far as next year i don't know if i'll put somebody in my place or if i'll have a chef de cuisine who's strong enough at the time but i know that it's important for my guests to see me they Elizabeth is small and intimate. and There's an open kitchen, and obviously, this appears even more intimate. But I would like to do this more time, uh, more full time, and scale things back a little bit as far as the day-to-day grunt work goes of the restaurant because you know I'm still running payroll and doing the HR and writing checks and paying the sales taxes and doing my social media. Um, I want to get to something that. Is sustainable, and I'm still doing what I love, but I actually have a a bit less stress, um, and because I don't think there's anything in my life that could have prepared me for management and the business, the restaurant business itself. So, yeah, that's oh. that's kind of where I'm going, and that really a lot of the book led up to that too. The past the past couple of years, as I was writing it. Um, I was opening a restaurant, closing a restaurant, opening another restaurant, and, you know, now I close that again, and it's, there's been a lot of struggles and a lot of good times, but a lot of things that is just, like, brought me to the point of thinking, like, okay, God, I want to burn this down, you know, and that's that's obviously where we got the title, but I think it's become something that's been a little bit more of a metaphor
4: Amazing. Well, chef, the title of the book is Burn the Place. Thank you for coming on Snacky Tunes. Uh, where can people get the book, um, come to your restaurant, try to get a reservation at the inn? How do How do they get a hold of you?
5: Um, MilkweedIn.com is uh, for the inn, and we have reservations open for 2020 because we're booked this year. Elizabeth-restaurant.com is to come to Elizabeth. Uh, people can buy the book on that website. And, um, then I have instructions on how to buy the book if people are looking for personalized copies, um, at burntheplace.com. And, um, obviously following Elena Regan on social media. Um, people can find me by typing in that name or In, Elizabeth Restaurant & Co. is our, um, Instagram handles. And then, um, uh, or for going to the, um, a local bookstore support nice local indie bookstore. And if they don't have it, they'll always order it. So.
4: Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we're going to hear another salon from the archives and we'll be back with the second half of snacky tunes here on heritage radio network.
0: Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history
1: at wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and on heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. It's good to be back. Fletcher C. Johnson in the hot seat. How many,
6: what's the most amount of appearances that one person has had? This is my third appearance.
2: Uh, You're kind of top. We have an annual trend show that, you know, I'm bearing the lead here, but he's been here almost every year. Our friend Jordana has been on a bunch of times, but you are probably the most solo musician. There's another woman named uh, Lila who's in Street Street Smell, who has like shown up in like other bands.
6: That has mm. shown in others. But
2: I think you gotta are. gotta come for her. You gotta come for her, but I think as uh, a reoccurring artist, you are the most. So, Excellent. Yes, so welcome back. It's good to see you. I'm trying to remember when last time we were here, but you were on like episode 95 and then 290 something. So it's, just, it's
6: been basically. Whenever I put out a record, which seems to be about every three years, I come on by. How long have you guys been doing this?
2: 10 years, 11 okay, years. Yeah, yeah. So, so
6: about the right. That's almost as long as. I think that's exactly how long my musical career has been with the Fletcher C. Johnson project.
2: Yes, when you broke off from your, your former bandmates. Yeah. What is it, or when is it in the process that when a record or a certain cycle ends that you feel the need to start doing the next record? Because some of the songs on this record took seven years. So when does like the next Inkling start to take place?
6: Well, um, the record that's coming out In October, I finished recording two and a half years ago. And then there's just been the the process of mixing it and getting all the final instruments on it and then shopping it around and all the other business stuff you have to do. And it always takes a long time with pressings and things. I always, Every musician will tell you they're mostly through their next record by the time any record comes out. So you're really always working on, you're always beyond the record that you're pushing
2: so we're ready for the next record so we should book the fourth appearance now
6: No, okay. well yeah for three years from now, three years it from still now. will take that long
2: um shining light is the new record shining light is the first single First single sorry the first single
6: yeah i have a the new record is called are, are you feeling it and it's coming out october 14th but we just had the first single come out last week so like i said after these years of waiting it's exciting to get something out there, start getting people and to
2: know. Is, is the there's is there a dip in between finishing it in the two and a half years and then it's the resurgence? Or what are the emotions? Because one of the things that's really interesting is you, and we'll get to it, because you started a podcast um, for this record, but a lot of it, you talk about anxiety and nerves. And what I really like is that you start to dive a little bit deeper into the process and the emotions that people feel, as opposed to like, oh, hey, that looks cool, you're in a band, this must be amazing.
6: Yeah. Oh yeah I'm really um trying to spread the word that it's mostly not amazing being in a band, but the uh the small amazing parts I guess make it all worth it. I don't know why we all do it, but
2: it's just is it really i don't i've never in all the years I've never really had anyone present it as a choice. I don't think it's like something that you choose to do, I think it's something that you're pulled to do or you know you feel destined to do or something that is in your bones that make you do it versus all of the hardships that come with it outside of the the few that go at 17 release a multi-platinum record and you go off to that startup
6: sure but as we were talking before we even started who even knows if those people are happy uh yeah i think i definitely if i'm not doing it i'm not i'm not it makes me unhappy to not do it and i find that uh when i was making this record in particular was a really happy time for me. The actual creation of these songs was one of the best like 6-month periods where I was just like happy all the time while I was doing it. So, I think that's a lot of what you're chasing. I I've never been that successful of a touring musician. You know, I do okay and there's some cities I do really well in and then there's a lot of smaller college towns where I would love to be doing a little bit better. If you're, if you're a big touring musician, maybe that same enthusiasm can come through all those times as well. But uh, definitely the recording process, which is my favorite thing about music, and the writing, is uh, it's just a, a joy that I can't get from anything else that I know of.
2: So it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. A little bit. Um, for this record, you decided to make a podcast, which obviously we love. What was it about the podcast medium and what is it that you didn't feel you could get from maybe writing blog posts or Instagram posts or what, how did you... Well,
6: I only knew about Snacky Tunes. I <laughs> thought you were the only podcast the I only thought. Don't, there don't... was a lot of stuff you weren't doing. Yeah. No. Uh, well, recording the podcast, like recording the music, is also kind of fun. I've recorded all my albums myself. I like playing around with Pro Tools, I like playing around with weird compressors and all the editing and things that really you get to do in the podcast. So I was set up for it, but the reason why I started doing it was basically I'd finished the record, like I said, a couple years ago, and I was trying to get someone to put it out. The record label who had put out my previous records, Burger Records, who've always been very sweet to me, they said they didn't want to do this record. So I started shopping it around, and that's a very time-consuming project. And while I was doing it, I just was trying to figure out what to do, particularly when I wasn't getting any positive responses from anybody. And at the podcast, it seemed like there were stories about these songs that I wanted people to know. Um...
2: I don't know how it all started. It's interesting. It continues the ongoing new approach to music or more recent approach to be artists being able to control their message on any scale of the, the medium. But I think being able to dive into it and hear it and interpret your own way and share it and also give more layers to the, the fans that want it, at least from my side. Well,
6: I think I really saw... I saw successful musicians were more successful than me they're, they're getting out there and they're getting interviews and they're telling their story and I love reading those stories I love musicians I love reading about music I read all of the all music posts about, I just want to know everything about musicians I always have and I don't know if a lot of music listeners feel that way but definitely me and my group of music obsessed friends just love it and you know I, I think you're when you're making music you're waiting around to get called in to do these interviews. They're like, "Oh, I want to oh, this I want to tell this story, I want to tell that story." But if no one comes knocking on your door, I just thought I'll just tell them. I'll just I'll just make it and put it out there and tell them how I want to. And uh, I just I really like storytelling. I like I like talking to people, I like telling funny stories. I love when people tell funny stories. Uh i also I write. I went to college for fiction writing, actually. So just storytelling, I think, is very fun. And maybe I felt like I wanted to have some of the storytelling that musicians get to do outside of lyric writing. Because I think lyric writing is actually, I'm much weaker at it than storytelling. Larger stories, when you have to condense it to, I've never been a poet. Uh, that wasn't my focus. It was you know, fiction writing and doing really long form stuff. And lyric writing, although it's just a struggle, I. To spend a lot of time and I try to make them good, but I definitely don't think it is my strongest writing suit so I'm just trying to play around with something something else I could do something that could go with the writing, something that could go with the music, and something that could go with the editing. When you put the writing, the music, and the editing all together, it just became a podcast the you know the listener will it's it's a storytelling podcast that's edited together with a lot of music and um it's all scripted and it's pretty tightly edited.
2: So how about this? Why don't you play a song? Sure. And then we'll do the story behind the song when we come back from you playing. Oh, okay. Great. So what, uh, what are you going to play for us first?
6: I'll play a song called Did You Ever Know, Boy.
2: Here we are with Fletcher C. Johnson on Snacky Tunes. His third appearance. Buying some time for the harp. Mouth harp. Perfect. Here we are with Fletcher C. Johnson on Snacky Tunes.
3: You know, thought everybody knows. Where well, don't you know? Oh whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's too cold
2: So, podcast, episode, what was that song about?
6: Well, that song is a song that's come with me through a couple of different albums over the years. Mostly what I did on this new record is new material, but like with every record I've done, I am not at all afraid to bring back a song that, um, that I've got better with, or that I just never quite figured out where I was supposed to go. I've calculated it, and most of my albums are a little over 30 minutes, and I put out one every three years, so all of my artistic output is about 10 minutes of a year, so I just can't be afraid to go into the
2: back catalog and pull something out. So it's a re-record of an old song, or it's, a reinterpretation of an old idea?
6: It's a re-recording... It's a song that I have recorded on three records, actually. And um, going back to the very first folk band I had when I moved to New York, uh, I was in, I started a project called Poor Boy Johnson with my buddy, The Goddamn Rattlesnake. And we had a long name, Poor Boy Johnson and The Goddamn Rattlesnake, featuring Crozier. And uh, we performed 53 shows in New York City in one year, more than one a week. Never Leaving, The Five Burrows. And it was a super fun project. It was a mandolin, guitar, and banjo trio with uh, three-part singing. And we kept it really rowdy. It was, uh, I call it my Muppet voice. I was really singing. And it took me a long time to figure out what my voice should be. Coming into that band, basically every part of becoming a musician. I always wanted to be a musician. I love music. But it really took me until I was 30 years old to start writing good songs and being able to sing them and perform them well. It was just something that I wanted so bad that even though I couldn't do it, I just kept trying until I figured out how. So I think maybe that's why some of these songs come back. But at that time, I was singing this crazy voice while trying to figure out. Like how many octaves
2: above are we talking about?
6: It was higher for sure. I actually, in fact, the last Fletcher C. Johnson record I did, um, I realized after it was done, I sang that whole record so much higher than I should have. It was a revelation to me. But it's always been a learning thing. I just wanted to play music. If you really want to play music and you just want to clock in a ton of hours, I am proof that you can do it. I'm almost like a weird Spock-like robot human who just, instead of feeling emotions, just goes, I will figure out how music works, because I want to do it so much. And that's always been my struggle.
2: But I also think that art sometimes can be trial and error. I think it's it's a different approach to it, but it doesn't make it any... I don't want to devalue what you're saying, but I think that art can also just be this thing that is an evolution over time. Sure, some people are, you know, you see someone singing or painting or doing something at a young age that just seems naturally born, and then the rest of us have to work at it.
6: Yeah, and, and um, there is an additional pressure on musicians because it's a young man's game. Or woman's. Uh, or woman's or game. Or however
2: you identify.
6: It's, when you're a writer, you're not expected to do anything until you're over 30. To write a, get a book out before you're 30 that's really good is, it's crazy. It's a very, like, one person in a million type thing in the writing world. But with musicians, you know, you, you, that's your whole world is before you're 30 often,
2: so. We had an artist on here, Roddy Romero, uh, last year, who plays very old kind of Cajun French music, who recognizes that he won't really actually come into the genre that he loves, in age-wise, for another 15, 20 years. So he's really excited to grow into this older music, but he's always felt super young In the field that he and the genre that he's chosen.
6: Yeah, that's to be young in the music game is a whole other world. But I think um, with the stuff I'm doing, this record that I just put out, it's I've always called the music I make folk pop. That's the best way I could describe it. It's very a lot of uh, melodic melodic vocal lines. It's a a lot of notes, very structured vocal lines has always been my thing. And uh, I think of that as pop music, although it certainly isn't in the contemporary sense. But if you come, you know, going back to like the Beatles, who had a lot, a lot of notes put in, very structured, like, ooh, I need your loving. Yes, you know, it's true. And it has you could play it on a guitar and you'd, you know, go, oh, that's that song. I, I know melodically, it's a very melodic written vocal line. And that's been my style. You have more of the rock and roll style style. Um, which is uh, more rhythmic based, which most music, particularly contemporary music, is very rhythmic in the vocal melodies. but I've always kind of done a more of a old-school melodic vocal line. I mean for rock and roll it's more like you know um, hear the sound of fighting revolution it's more it's more beats or, or just, that rock and roll music, any old way you... T- I, that's, that is is melodic too, but it's more hitting you with a, a rhythm. And I've always been in kind of the old school um, Everly Brothers type melodic thing. So I think I've called it folk pop because a lot of folk guys are also... It's rhythm, it's slower. The folk rhythm is a lot slower,
2: but... So what is it about that song, um, the song that keeps coming back to you over the years that you feel you haven't quite finished it yet that has to show up well, on the I think that's
6: album. one of the best damn songs I've ever written so I've always wanted I've like I gotta perfect this song it was really there was a bridge on it that I changed so there's a whole new bridge but the way that song fit in with the songs on this record which what I was getting at is this record is much more folky it goes back the first record I did was a little more folky um the more rock and pop stuff has come through but in the end it's always just me with an acoustic guitar so uh going back to some earlier folky stuff and, and bringing them getting a chance to take this song which i've always liked which never would have fit in on the more poppy records i've done and and get it back into the fold and, and really work it out with what i can do now was so fun so that's a highlight of the record for me, even though this song is probably ten years old itself. Can we hear another song? Sure. We're gonna play for us. I'll play a a brand new one called Portland.
2: I have no idea what the song could be about.
6: <laughs> this one, the uh, the harmonica while playing guitar is a pretty fresh move for me. So, I just arranged a solo. While uh, while you're hearing this with just me and the acoustic guitar, I do play with a a rhythm section. I have a great drummer, J.J. Ellis Ellis, and Uncle Will on bass. So usually I can shred some solos on the guitar, but this is going to be all harmonica.
3: than L.A. We have more fun anyway. There's a hot tub down the street if you can jump the game. Don't you think that you
2: Comes out in October. October fourteenth. Where did you find a home for it?
6: I just put it out myself. I never did find a home. Uh, that was, you know, that was part of the struggle of it.
2: And what do you feel as a musician who's put out records over the years that the landscape has changed, or as a change where putting it out on your own is not as detrimental or not as shameful or? anxiety inducing or does it give you a little bit of anxiety in 2019 versus how it's been over the past decade plus of music
6: yeah i don't i don't no one knows no one knows what's going on right now you know it's a really a struggle for everybody and uh the labels are trying to figure it out and i'm trying to figure it out and you can put out a record yourself and make more money than you can on a label if you do it right there's a lot of music business which I've avoided my entire life. I've never had any interest in doing it and definitely has not helped me, but I just—I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to write music. But with this one, what putting it out yourself does is uh, it forces you to do a lot more music business, which
2: this is the time. Maybe it's going to work. Who knows? How do you feel about that idea of ownership where everything you do could possibly feedback and you feel that you're not just going to turn over to a label that may or we've had stories over the years of people whose records they put it out with a label and for one reason or another something more important or something else came along and that time they just it didn't get pushed or promoted or
6: oh I've uh, been uh, with you know I've had friends bands that have gone on to uh, get signed to a major label and you know I re- remember particularly that happening uh, to one friends and and We had a full-on champagne party, a brager, like, tear-the-house-down type party, and it didn't work out for them at all, and they left that label immediately, and and it wasn't good for them. So, I I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say.
2: I tend to feel that, especially now, because there are, it's not as opaque as it used to be. There's more tools that are available that you can take these projects, in in almost any discipline, much further before you need that cosign or... You need that support that labels or the perception of labels used to give before that you will be more in control of the project and more in control of where it goes and the success that you have. Sure, there are still some barriers to entry, but once you get past the newness of it or the un- unknowability, it's not as difficult or um, as strange as it might have used to be.
6: I think so. I I don't. I've never known enough about. As I said, music business to even know, I don't even know what didn't work. I know there's a lot of things you can do, uh, which I'm not going to do most of them. But if you want to just continue working angles, you can hustle. And I, I know hustlers. The, all the bands I know that are really have gone out there and become successful, they have the hustler in the band. You got to have someone that likes sitting in front of a computer and just working it because you can. You, you can do it. That's really the key. Sitting in front of a computer is the key to almost anything in contemporary society. Right. Something, something that's interesting to me, which I think about, is people's ability to buy music, people's ability to make money off of selling their music, selling so people will buy the music in a physical form. It's only existed for 50 years, basically, total between the time when record players were readily accessible and people were pressing it and then and young people could go out and just get what they wanted to when the digital age brought in a time where uh, you, you don't need to buy anything ever again. It's a, such a short window in the period of all musicians. So maybe we'll go back to pre-1950s when I don't know how musicians made money before then. Maybe they
2: didn't. I've never figured out how to make any money, but... So you're going to have a champagne toast or tear the house down celebration for the record release in October? When I put it out? uh, Yeah, why not? Okay. Uh, So where can people find you, find the record, uh, listen to the podcast, get everything Fletcher C. Johnson
6: worldwide? Sure. The podcast is called Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson. Uh, That song I just did, uh, Portland, is an episode that's coming out in couple weeks and that is one of my favorite ones because it's about Portland Oregon that weird hippie crust punk train hopper uh, land that I, every time I've been there it's just gotten weirder and weirder and I love it there and I tell stories uh, it's two stories about when I was 19 years old and two stories about when I was 23 years old about waking up in strange places and trying to figure out where you are when you woke up. And that's, uh, I think, writing-wise, the strongest episode that I did. Amazing. And where can people hear the record? It's just going to be on all the streaming things. All the things. It'll be on all the things. Great. It already is, that first song and uh, Shining Light. And the podcast is also on all the things. I mean, just take advantage of uh, what's out there.
2: Any parting words of advice...
6: Oh man, no! It's call, get the get the lines open. We'll call get some people calling and tell me what to do. I'm trying to figure it out right now. You ask me in a, in another year, I'll come back on and just tell you what I've learned so far.
2: Okay, great. Well, we will actually do that. Big thank you to Chef Elena Regan, author of Burn the Place. We really loved speaking with you. What are you going to take us out with?
6: I'm going to play a song called "In My Time," which uh, has a red hot music video that. I've made for the record which will be out in about three weeks it's me doing professional magic tricks in front of your very eyes
2: I literally can't wait thank you for everyone for listening in we'll be back next week with another episode of Snack of Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network Fletcher take us out
3: She knows just what you want to do I always knew that it would end This way records are strewn Across the floor they look Like faces of the friends I've loved Friends that keep me company They sing like ghosts supposed to be. talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
0: This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter